Hey, if we haven't met before, my name is Ben, as Jenna said, and I'm the groups and disciple-making pastor here at our Noblesville campus. And uh, Genesis very graciously gave me a sabbatical this uh, past summer. And so I want to start today just by saying thank you so much for giving me that time away. I know I said it a little bit last week, but uh, one of the things that uh, people frequently would say to me when they found out I was going on sabbatical or I was on sabbatical is they would say, you deserve it. And I appreciate the heart behind that, but the truth of it is, no, I don't. Uh, not any more than anybody who works hard at their job, and that's most of you in this room, I would imagine. Um, sabbaticals are not deserved. They are pure grace, and that's what the elders of this church and the leadership of this church gave me this summer is a gift, a gift of pure grace, and I was, I'm just so thankful for it. My wife and I both, throughout the summer, would just uh, continually feel just overwhelmed with thankfulness. I didn't have much of a reference point to, uh, to really point back to. I've never experienced anything like that before. And so I don't want to bore you, but I thought I might share just a few pictures. I have 60 uh, pictures I wanted to go through with you today. <laughs> Not really, but I do want to show you a, a few. So when I show you these, you're going to think that I just traveled all summer long. That is not true. I'm a homebody. I like to be home, but we planned kind of just one special trip uh, each month. Every three or four weeks, we would get away. Uh, and so the first thing we did was a fishing trip. I, I grew up going to a fishing camp up in northern Wisconsin. And so just Beth and myself, my son Josiah, and our next-door neighbor Austin went up to the north woods of Wisconsin. And uh, Jose told me that that's a bluegill that I caught. He, he's real good on fish species, but uh, no, that is a, a tiger muskie. That's what happens when a muskie and a northern pike fall in love. They make a tiger muskie. So that was one of the biggest ones I've caught up there. That was pretty special. And then in July, we took another trip up to Wisconsin, and this one was supposed to be more of like the family boating and laying out, you know, in the sun, a little warmer in July. I still got some fishing in, caught a 26-inch walleye. I was pretty excited about that. And then in August, just my wife and I got to get away. We went up to um, near White Cloud, Michigan, to a place called The Shack, beautiful facility, and a separate organization would rent out the facility every once in a while, and they put on a pastor's retreat, and I went through an interview process, and, and we got accepted for the retreat. It's all your meals are, are paid for, and the whole thing is, is paid for. We tried to take a selfie. We were laughing so hard, because this is the closest I got to us being centered up in the picture. <laughs> Uh, but that's us. And while we were there, I, I caught another fish too. I, I was fishing off the shore and I caught that bass. And so that was pretty exciting in Michigan. And then to, to round out the sabbatical, to kind of finish up the very last week, someone from our church arranged for us to stay in their condo in Pensacola Beach, Florida. And it was right on the beach and we could just walk out. And so this is us uh, on the porch of our condo and everybody's looking tan in the picture. And um, all my girls want to do, including Beth Ann, is lay on the beach all day. Like when we're in Florida, they just, they put on whatever they're rubbing on themselves and then they just go lay on the beach all day. They get hot and they go in the water and they come back and they lay back down. That has a shelf life of about five minutes for me. And so uh, I bought, I had never fished in saltwater before, so I bought a saltwater fishing license and I caught a bunch of these. Um, I don't even know what that is. I think somebody called it a ladyfish, but uh, we had a good time down there in Florida that last week. Now, you may see these pictures, 
And you may think, man, is that all you, did you just fish your whole sabbatical? <laughs> yeah, I did, actually. Um, it was awesome. And so uh, it was a really great time, lots of family time and reconnecting with the Lord and excited to be back here with you all now. Well, if you're uh, new with us this morning, like Jenna said, we are reading through the Bible this year. We've made it all the way through the Old Testament, and uh, in the reading plan last week, we came to the Gospel of Luke. And when we talk about the Gospels, we're talking about the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've actually already studied John, because we're going to read Luke and Acts together. But uh, I think Luke chapter 4 was the reading for today. You hear me say that word gospel, and maybe, maybe you've heard that word before, but you're not familiar with what it means. That word literally just means good news. And that's what those first four books of the New Testament are. They're the good news about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And maybe you've wondered, why do we need four gospels? Why, why are there four different accounts? And couldn't they have just put it all in one, and we have the, the one gospel? Well, keep, keep in mind that each of these books was written uh, for a specific audience, and it had a specific purpose in mind. And each one of the Gospels highlights different details about the life of Christ for the audience and the purpose in mind. Some people will point to the differences between the Gospels, and they will use that as evidence to say, well, see, they, they contradict each other, they're not trustworthy, they're not reliable, but they don't recognize that, that these were not written to line up perfectly It's different people giving different perspectives. There's an English Bible scholar named A.W. Pink, and he points out in his book, The Four Gospels, uh, he says this. He says, in many cases, claims concerning the contradictions between the Gospels ignore the different purposes of the four writers. The focus helps us understand what each intended to emphasize in the character of Christ, and one account could never capture the complete picture. And so if you think about a police officer arriving on the scene of a crash, he's not going to want to talk to just one person, is he? He's going to want to talk to everybody that saw it. And everyone who saw it, saw it from a little bit of a different angle. They caught a little different detail. Something different stood out to to this person than what stood out to this person. And it's only in hearing from everyone that he gets a fuller picture of what actually happened. Well, that's what the, the Gospels are like. And so I want to share with you a little bit this morning about uh, what's unique to Luke's gospel, and then we're going to jump in and look at at one story in particular. First of all, uh, Luke is unique in that he is the only New Testament writer who is not Jewish. Okay, Luke was a Gentile, and uh, that comes out in his writing style. You might have noticed that in Matthew, Mark, and John, they spend a lot of time pointing back to the Old Testament and then showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Luke spends much less time doing that and more time expressing that Christ is for everyone, not just for the Jew, but for, for everyone, for the entire world. Another unique thing about Luke is the fact that he was a a physician. Luke was a doctor, and that may help explain why he pays so much attention to detail. In fact, scholars note uh, that Luke is very good with detail. He's always listing dates and names and events, and it gives his gospel even more credibility than it would have otherwise. Luke's medical background likely also has something to do with the fact that he uh, tends to highlight more the the hurting and the sick and Jesus's interaction uh, with those folks. 
And uh, like I said, I want to focus in on one of these stories of Jesus' interaction with a hurting person from Luke's gospel today. And it's found in Luke chapter 7. So this is a little bit ahead in the reading plan. You're going to come to it on Wednesday, I believe, maybe Tuesday. But hopefully it'll be a blessing for you when you get to it to have already studied it here today and kind of recall some of this information. Theologian William Barclay called the Gospel of Luke the loveliest book in all the world, and specifically the story we're going to look at today as the loveliest story in all of the Gospels. If you brought a Bible with you today, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. This is a relatively brief account in the life of Jesus, but it gives us a much clearer perspective on the heart of God, specifically when it comes to hurting people. Specifically when we talk about people who are are downcast or people who feel defeated by life. And who in this room today has not felt like that at some point? Uh, Maybe you're there right now. None of us are shielded from the effects of living in a a world that has been broken by sin. And uh, Matthew Henry puts this somewhat poetically when he says, How numerous, how various... How very calamitous are the afflictions of the afflicted in this world. What a veil of tears it is. And I suspect that there are some of you who even right now are experiencing that veil of tears from whatever situation you may be walking through. Some of you may be familiar with the writer George Eliot. Uh, that was the pen name of Mary, Marianne Davis, and she wrote a novel called Middle March. And she writes in that novel these words. She said, If we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, we would likely die of that roar which lies on the other side of the silence. And that is to say that if we could hear, if we could physically hear the emotions, the pain, the sorrow, the grief that is all around us, that it would be a sound so overwhelming and so deafening that we would not be able to endure it. And whatever it is that may have caused that veil of tears for you, whatever lies on the other side of your own silence, my prayer for you today is that you will hear from God from his word today. And then in a very powerful way that you would understand that God sees you, that he cares about you, he has not forgotten you, and in him you will find everything you need to endure this life. Let's take a look at the passage together. We're going to start in verse 11, Luke Luke 7, verse 11. And Luke writes this, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. Now let's pause right here and let's just get our bearings, because again, this is not made up stuff. This is a story that actually happened. It actually happened in time and in space, and it tells us that Jesus had been in Capernaum. So when we look at our map of Israel, you can see that Capernaum is way up there in the north, right by the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus has just come from, and we learn that he's going to travel from there to the town of Nain. Now, Nain isn't on this map, but it's about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. And uh, this would have taken the better part of a day to travel. 25 miles is a long way to walk, right? In fact, if Jesus had a Fitbit, he would have logged 50,000 steps (laughs) in the the journey from Capernaum to Nain. That's not bad. Uh, Nain sits on the edge of what is called the Jezreel Valley, and it's actually a place you can still visit today. Paul Mumaw took this picture when he was in Israel a few weeks ago just a part of the Jezreel Valley, and Nain is this village that you see in the lower right-hand corner of the screen. Interestingly, 
Um, Nazareth is the town that you can see on the hill in the upper left of the screen. And Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. And so Nain is not far from where Jesus grew up. And we don't know why Jesus was traveling to Nain. Uh, The text doesn't tell us that. But it does describe the scene as Jesus and his disciples and this large group with him are about to enter the city. Look at verse 12. It says, as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Okay, so here's Jesus and his disciples and the huge crowd that is is traveling with him. They've been walking all day, probably nine plus hours in this uh, trip, this journey from Capernaum to Nain. And now they've finally arrived at their destination. They're getting ready to go into the town and they meet another large crowd coming out of the city gates towards them. And this crowd is carrying a dead body. It's a funeral procession. That's what they've come on. And this makes sense because in those days, the dead were never buried inside of of the cities. Dying uh, or decaying bodies let off a distinct odor that would not be desirable in the city. And so when someone died, they always carried them outside of the city for burial. And it's interesting to note that archaeologists have found tombs in the rocks all along the road from Nain to Capernaum, and especially around the eastern gate, which I believe is likely the gate that's talked about here in Luke chapter 7, because Jesus is traveling uh, from Capernaum in the east, the northeast, and so he would have come into likely the eastern gate. Uh, And the text tells us that the body was being carried out by a large crowd, okay? This crowd certainly included townspeople who had come to pay their respects, But it's also likely that there were some other people in the crowd who were paid mourners. It was typical in in that day uh, to pay mourners to come and to play instruments and to wail loudly and to be a part of the procession on the way uh, to the, the burial. So for Jesus and all those with him, there would have been no doubt what was going on. Okay, someone has died and a funeral is about to take place, but Luke, who I mentioned is pretty good on detail, he gives us two more important pieces of information. In verse 12, look there again, he says, the dead person who was being carried out was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Okay, so right here, Luke wants to focus our attention away from the crowds, away from the the commotion, and focus in on the woman of the, the dead body the woman associated with this who was her only son, and he tells us that she was a widow. We're not told when her husband had died, but it's very likely her son had died that very same day. In the first century Israel, it was uh, very common that someone would be buried the very same day that they died. And so for this woman, her pain is fresh. I mean, her emotions are as raw as they can be. She is certainly overwhelmed with grief. And whether or not she has had the capacity to even comprehend this yet or not, the reality is she is at a distinct disadvantage in life now. At some point, she's lost her husband, but, but even then, she had her son to rely on. But now she's lost her son. And again, in first century Israel, a, a woman without a husband and without a son to care for her, I mean, who, who's going to protect her? Who's going to provide for her? She is utterly alone in the world now. And I wonder if you have ever felt that way. It's funny how sometimes even within a a crowd of people, we can feel so very isolated and alone. 
Maybe even in, in this building this morning, in this room full of people, you're sitting there and you feel just alone. There's probably 200 people in this building right now, and yet we can just feel all alone. I imagine that's what the, the widow from Nain was feeling. There's people all around her and yet all alone. But someone takes notice. Luke tells us about it in verse 13. He says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. So Luke tells us that that the Lord saw her. Here comes this crowd with all the the fanfare. People are beating on tambourines. They're playing their flutes. They're they're wailing loudly. Uh, Just this this massive funeral procession coming Jesus's way. And And it's not that that catches his attention. The, the, the text says he saw her. He looked right through all of the noise and all of the commotion, and he saw her. And we read that his heart went out to her. And that's a, a really interesting phrase. In fact, in the Greek, it's just one word. And Luke picked the strongest word possible to describe what Jesus experienced as he saw her. It's the Greek word uh, splagnizomai. The, the first part of that word actually refers to your internal organs. Okay, It's your, your guts. Your splagna is your, your guts. It's everything inside of you. Splagnizomai is being moved so deeply by something that you feel it. You, you experience it in the pit of your stomach. It's a, a heart-wrenching compassion and concern for others. I heard Bob Russell say once that compassion is your pain in my heart. That's splagnizomai. And that's what Jesus experienced when he saw this woman. He was filled with deep compassion for her. And out of his compassion, he speaks to her. And he says, don't cry. Don't cry. And we say that too, don't we? I've said that before. I've said it to my kids. I hope I haven't ever said it to any of you, but uh, maybe. But when we say it, it's usually just because we don't know what else to say, right? And so we just, we say that, don't cry. Or, Or maybe we say it from selfish motives because we'd really prefer that the person crying would stop, right? Maybe it's a, a small child and they're really not hurt that bad. And so we say, you know what, just stop crying. I'm annoyed by the noise. Just stop. Well, that's not Jesus's heart here at all. He saw the woman. His heart went out to her, and he tells her not to cry because he's about to do something about her pain. Jesus is about to change this woman's story. And don't you think that when the the disciples heard him say those words, don't cry, they were like, oh man, here it comes. He's going to do something cool. Watch this, right? They've seen it before. Look at verse 14. It says, then Jesus went up and he touched the beer. Okay, and a beer in this passage is not a barley-based beverage, all right? It would be a wicker, kind of like a wicker stretcher that the, the body would be laid on. And it says that Jesus went up and he touched the bier that they were carrying the dead body on, and the bearers stood still. You better believe they stood still because these are good Jewish boys, and they know the Torah, and they know that Numbers 19 says that anyone who touches a dead body or a grave is unclean, and Jesus is getting awfully close to this dead body. Why on the earth would, would he do this? Why, why would he put him so close to uncleanliness? Well, I love what Kent Hughes says about this in his commentary. He writes that touching a beer meant sure pollution according to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. 
But Jesus knew that the law required mercy above sacrifice. And so Jesus took charge. His silent touch stopped everything and life and death stood face to face. That's what's happening here. Make no mistake about it. This is a standoff between the Lord of life and death itself. See, for Jesus, death was never just a natural reality to be resigned to. Death is an enemy to be defeated. And here they are in this face-off. Jesus is staring death in the face, and he breaks the silence with one simple command. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And Hughes points out that the young man was dead in body, but he was fully alive somewhere. Jesus is speaking to the young man fully alive somewhere. See, death for mankind is only death of the body. The human spirit lives on. And that's really important because some would believe that, that death is the end, that we live our life here and then we die and we're dead and that's, that's it. That's the end of the story. Well, Jesus proves this thinking wrong as he speaks directly to the boy. And then in verse 15, it says, the dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Dwight L. Moody was once asked to conduct a funeral service, and so he decided that the best thing to do would be to study the Gospels, to look for a funeral sermon that Jesus had, had once preached, and then to emulate that. But his search was in vain because every funeral that Jesus ever attended, he ultimately broke up by raising the people back from the dead, right? And that's exactly what happened in Nain. At Jesus' command, the dead heart, it started pumping, and those empty lungs, they filled up with air again. And those loose muscles, they started to tense up. And the young man sat up and he began speaking. Hey, guys, what's going on here? You know, what did he say? We don't know. It, it doesn't record it for us. But can you imagine what it would have been like to see this cold, gray corpse just sit up and rejuvenate with life and to begin speaking again? I mean, I imagine it was a, a mixture of terror and, and awe all at the same time. Jesus had claimed for his own what death had seized as its prey. That's how William Barclay describes it. In the face-off between Jesus and death, death didn't stand a chance. And with just a word, Jesus ended the standoff and gave life to the dead. And this account certainly serves as a prelude to the ultimate battle between Jesus and death. But before we get to that, there's one more thing I don't want you to miss. Because I missed it for years. I've read this passage a bunch of times. And it was only in studying last week that this was brought to my attention. Luke gives us one final glimpse of the compassion of Jesus. Look again at the second half of verse 15. It says that after the dead man came back to life... Jesus gave him back to his mother. So Jesus gave him back to his mother. Death had taken her son away. Now Jesus returns what had been taken. But this is what I don't want you to miss. Giving the young man back to his mother was not Jesus' only option. The young man was dead. He has now been given life again by Jesus. He literally owes his life to the Lord and Jesus could have commanded and demanded that the, the boy come with him, 
that the boy become one of his disciples or that he travel with him as, as proof of his authority. Or maybe like the demoniac who Jesus healed and set free, uh, maybe the boy would want to go with Jesus and, and beg Jesus, let me come with you. Let me be one of your disciples. But listen to what Matthew Henry says in his commentary. He says, Christ would not oblige this young man to go along with him as his disciple, much less as a trophy or a show to get honor by him, but delivered him to his mother. For Christ's miracles were miracles of mercy, and a great act of mercy this was to the widow. See, what was on Jesus' heart? It was the woman. He never lost sight of her through this entire event. She had captured his attention. His heart had gone out to her. And now he has given her back her one and only son. And can't you just see Jesus full of compassion, taking the young man by the hand, helping him up to his feet, and delivering him back to his mother? Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine the embrace? Her veil of tears now turns to tears of joy. And it foreshadows something for all of us who are in Christ, and it's the day when we will experience reunion with our loved ones who died before in Christ. And uh, I get asked quite a bit, will we recognize our loved ones in heaven? I am absolutely convinced that we will. No doubt in my mind, we will recognize our loved ones in heaven. And just as Christ gave the son back to the mother, I believe that this scene will play out millions of times in heaven as we are reunited with them and we embrace them again and we stand shoulder to shoulder with them, worshiping our great God for all of eternity. What a hope. I mean, what a promise. You know, it's also interesting to note, uh, I listened to Alistair Begg preach a sermon on this passage one time and and he pointed out that in this story, no one asked Jesus to do anything. And he makes the point, where would we be if the only time Jesus intervened for us was when we asked him to? I mean, how great is God's compassion that even when we don't know what to ask, even when we don't know that we should ask, even when we ask in wrong ways, that God is so rich in compassion to do for us what he knows that we need done. Listen, I don't know what feels dead in your life right now, but what I do know is that with just one touch from Jesus, just one word from his lips, he can breathe life back into you. And the same compassion that we see flowing from Jesus to the widow of Nain it's the compassion that God has for all of us. We read about God's compassion throughout the scriptures, but one well-known passage is found in Lamentations chapter 3. It says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's compassion for you is new every single morning. It never fails. Because God is a faithful God, and whatever you are going through right now, God has compassion for you. He sees you, his heart goes out to you, and his compassion is sufficient for every need. His, his compassion is comforting in your loss. His compassion is reassuring in your distress. His compassion is uplifting in your defeat, and God's compassion is calming in our anxieties. He sees us. 
He understands our situation. His heart goes out to us, and his power is unlimited. And and that simply means that there is nothing that happens to us that is outside of his sovereign control. He's the most powerful being in the universe. Not even death can separate us from the love of God. And in him, we find everything we need. But hear me on this. This story about the widow of Nain, as great as it is, is not our greatest example of God's compassion for us. The greatest example we have, the greatest proof we have of God's compassion for us is found at the cross, where God saw us dead in our sins, and he made his son to become a sin offering for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. You see, God is not only compassionate, he is also just. And justice demands payment for sin. If God did not penalize sin, he would not be just. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's what every single human who has ever walked the earth deserves, save Jesus Christ. You've sinned, I've sinned, all of us have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And God would have been completely just to simply leave us in that that consequence. But he did not. God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our sins, even while we were still sinning, made us alive together with Christ. The greatest proof of God's compassion over you is found in what he did on the cross for you because he took the punishment you deserved upon himself and he offered you the righteousness that you so desperately need. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And John tells us in the opening of his gospel that to all who receive him, to those who call on his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. And if you've never done that, you can do it today. There's not a list of things that you need to go through first and, and become a better person and clean yourself up. None of that. You just call on his name, you receive his free gift, and you will be given the gift of eternal life. And that gift comes with hope because Jesus didn't stay in that grave. But he rose from the dead. He defeated death. He rose himself from the dead. It wasn't just the the widow's son. He brought himself back to life, giving us hope that this life is not all there is and the best is yet to come. And so we fix our eyes on that. We fix our eyes on, on, on the eternity that we will spend with him and not on our temporary sufferings here on this world. It's going to be eternal joy, you guys, eternal bliss with uh, the saints in heaven. And I want you to know, if you don't know that hope today, you can. It can be yours. I'll be up front here after the service. Justin will be up here with me. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you take a next step with Christ. Today can be that day for you. But if you hear anything I say this morning, especially if you're walking through pain right now, I want you to know God sees you. His heart goes out to you. And he has the power uh, to sustain you through it and to change your story. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much that when we were dead in our sins, you made us alive with Christ. 
Father, that you sent Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, but that he made himself nothing. He took the form of a man. He was made like us in every way, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, but he lived a perfectly obedient life. And then he laid that life down as a sacrifice for my sin and all of the sin of the world. Father, thank you for opening up the door to a relationship with you. That Christ has paid for our sin. He has credited it to us his righteousness. And Father, that we can have hope because of Christ's uh, gift for us on the cross, his resurrection, and the hope of eternity with you. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room today who are walking through difficulty, who are experiencing pain and sorrow right now. Father, I pray that uh, they would feel your compassion in some real ways today and in the days to come, that they would remember that you see them, you've not forgotten them, You are a God of compassion. Your compassions are new every morning. You are a faithful God. And there is nothing that you don't have power and control over, not even death itself. That's where our hope is, God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.